The reading this evening is Hebrews chapter 2, and it can be found on page 1201 of your Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2. Warning to pay attention. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under his feet, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregations, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Can I ask you to turn with me to uh, page 1201, back to Hebrews chapter 2 uh, tonight? So let me give you a moment to do that. And let me pray for us as we come to this chapter in Hebrews tonight. Father God, we thank you tonight that we have been singing much about your great salvation. And Father, as we come to this chapter in Hebrews chapter 2, we pray for your spirit to be our teacher. We pray, Lord, that we would leave this place amazed again by that great salvation that has been secured through Christ, that it will warm our hearts and our minds, and that it will help us to live for you this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
last uh, Sunday afternoon at 3.30 p.m., the All-Ireland hurling final took place between Tipperary and Kilkenny. It's taken me a week to get over this, but the first half was close affair with both teams very nervous, mistakes being made. The second half saw Tipperary excel and perform to probably what was hurling perfection. They were supreme over Kilkenny, and they showed their supremacy in every area of the game. It was a, 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 a really good game. Sadly for Kilkenny, a loss. But the supremacy of them was so evident that I, even as a Kilkenny man, you had to sit back and go, they were the best. They deserved it. They were supreme. And in chapter 1 last week, in Hebrews chapter 1, we saw the similar comparisons being made, didn't we, about the supreme Lord Jesus Christ, who is the supreme Word, the Creator, the Son, his supremacy surpasses that of angels. You'll notice in Hebrews, he's got an obsession with angels, whatever the background was with them. Our, the Lord Jesus is supreme over them, and his supremacy is seen in how he provided a way of purification for sin. And as we come to chapter 2 this evening, that supremacy of Jesus continues to be highlighted throughout this chapter there is no one like Jesus. There is nothing that comes close to his equal when it comes to his incarnation, his sacrifice, and what he is doing now for people like you and me. It's all very encouraging. But do you notice the opening words of chapter 2, verse 1, where he starts off and he says this, we must pay most, more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. This warning is a bit like little Davy, isn't it, in school? You probably were there, probably were this person at one stage, where he's daydreaming out the window, and all he hears is a voice from the front saying, pay more attention, Davy, don't drift. And that's what this verse is highlighting. This verse is highlighting the danger for us as Christians that you can actually drift from the gospel message, the Word of God. And we saw last week in chapter 1 in the opening verses about the Word that it was shown. Do you see it there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1? That this Word was spoken through the prophets, but He has now spoken to us by His Son. This is a revealed Word, a spoken Word. And here now in chapter 2, verse 1, we're commanded to pay more careful attention to it in order to avoid drifting away. It's very easy to drift away from the Word of God. One can become bored of the simple yet profound good news of the gospel. A slow drift could sound like this, couldn't it? And we've all been here. I've heard all this before. The speaker didn't say that and knew. And there is this profound thing about the gospel that it is so simple that sometimes it doesn't seem that new, and yet it is profoundly deep. And just like a boat, we can be on the sea, we can easily be taken off course by currents which come in different forms and we drift away from the gospel message. And yes, there can be different forms of theology, culture and pressures and trends that cause that drift away. But the author here of Hebrews is acknowledging to the community of God's people, he's saying the reality is we need to pay more careful attention to the gospel, to the word of God so that we avoid drifting. Give careful attention to what you've heard. Study it. Chew over it. Discuss it. 
and apply it so that it will safeguard you from drifting. But do you notice why we are to pay more careful attention in verses 1 to 5? We're to pay more careful attention so as not to ignore such a great salvation. These opening five verses are saying, pay careful attention to the words so that you don't ignore such a great salvation. Because in verse 3, he goes on, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? There are consequences, fallout, to ignoring the salvation that God has provided through his son, the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 takes us back into the Old Testament. Do you see it there? He mentions the law and the word given in the Old Testament and that it was binding. And if you violated it, there was punishment and consequences. And what are you saying? If that word in the Old Testament was to be followed and obeyed, how much more so is the word to be obeyed and followed and paid attention to for us today? Because this is God's great revelation. How can we ignore it? How can we ignore such a great revelation and salvation? We have much more of redemptive history and its salvation plan today than the Old Testament folk had. And the author of Hebrews reminds us of this. Do you see it at the very end of verse 3? This salvation was first announced to us by the Lord. And if you take a, a few moments during the week and go back to Mark's gospel, how does Jesus' public ministry take off? John is put in prison, and here's what it says. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of the gospel. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We've heard the good news from Jesus. We have from his lips the way of salvation, repentance and belief. And those words of Jesus were passed on by eyewitness accounts. It was, and as at the end of verse 3 says, confirmed to us by those who heard him. The Gospels are telling us of the life, words, and actions of Jesus as they were seen and heard. And you know something today? That can give us great confidence. This Gospel, this word that we have that we're encouraged to pay attention to, has been given and confirmed by Jesus himself. Eyewitnesses have passed it on, and so what you have in front of you tonight is the words of life that Jesus has given us. That's wonderful to think of. But God also testified to the message of salvation. Do you see it there at the end of verse 4? By signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his divine will. Jesus' teaching in the Gospels was often accompanied, wasn't it, by signs and wonders. For example, when he forgave the paralyzed man of his sins, he proved this by making him walk after it. The Acts of the Apostle, various miracles and wonders were happening. We were looking at one recently, weren't we? When the man who fell asleep up in the balcony, probably, out the window, fell dead because of Paul's sermon. What was a sign and wonder? Paul came and raised him. What was it to do? Authenticate the message. So the message was testified to or authenticated. You see, the word of God and its message of salvation through the gospels, through the life of Jesus and the acts of the apostles into the early New Testament church was accompanied by various miraculous events. Why? Why was that? To show that the message was genuine, real, and powerful, and it was from God. Alex Matir in his commentary on Hebrews says the following, 
about these signs and wonders that it not only demonstrated God's truth, but demonstrated God's sovereignty. Isn't that wonderful to think that in our day of scientific discovery and, pers and persuasion, that we've got to understand that when the message of, of the gospel was given to, and Jesus spoke those words as the gospel is spelled out to us, as the New Testament Acts takes it forward, it's accompanied by signs and wonders and miraculous deeds in order to authenticate it. That is a wonderful way so that people would believe the message. And the challenge for us today is how are we going to attend to the God's word? He's given us the Old Testament. He's given us Jesus' own words, his acts of the apostles, the letters. And how are we going to attend to the word? How are we going to pay attention to it? In many ways, we're coming down with resources, aren't we? digital resources. You can listen to the best of theologians on Hebrews chapter 2 when you go home tonight. You can get speakers online who will talk to you. Desiring God will even give you free, free sermons, podcasts. Keller won't though. He'll have to pay for it. You know something, don't you? You can get so much, but you can't beat being meeting with God's people through the gathering of His people locally under His Word as we come under it together. Reading the Word for yourself meditating on it so that you do not drift, so that you don't ignore such a great salvation. Hebrews is honest. It's saying you can drift from the gospel and the message that you've been given. The question is, how do you avoid this drift? The word has to be central, central to our life as a congregation, central to our lives as individuals. And we have so much of it. We're without excuse. And the rest of the chapter, of chapter 2 of Hebrews, really is spelling out this great salvation. If you want to look at it like this, it's like he said, this is a great salvation. And you're going, okay, but now he's going to put flesh on the bones. So the great salvation means, look at verses 5 to 9. One of the aspects of this great salvation is that everything is under Jesus. <laughs> Everything is subjected to him. Verse 5, it says that it wasn't the angels that God subjected the world to come to, but rather it was Jesus. And even though the end of verse 8 says we don't see the full implications of this reality yet, it is coming. Everything under Jesus. What a wonderful thing to think about. That this great salvation means that everything will be put under Christ's authority and rule. We do not yet see it. You just have to look at the news today even to see that. But there's coming a time when it will happen. Turn with me, will you, just for a moment to page 1179 um, of your pew Bibles. And I just want to um, highlight a verse here on page 1179. Uh, it's Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, page 1179, verse 9 and 10, we're focusing on. Here Paul writes about what Christ has done. And he mentions the cross and how he was made nothing, how he took on the very nature of a servant, how he's found in the likeness of man. He humbled himself in verse 8 by becoming obedient to death even on a cross. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful, isn't it? That this great salvation which has been brought about through Christ will one day bring everything under him. And then we see, do you see it there in, in verses 6 and 8, that this quotation from Psalm 8, which tells us about God and his purposes from humanity for people he created, a beautiful psalm is quoted. And here's what it says, in part, that God is mindful of us. He cares for us. We're not angels. We're a little lower. And how God has crowned humanity with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. This was God's intended purpose and desire for men and women. In the garden narrative in Genesis, what did God do? He made man and woman in his image. They were the pinnacle of his creation. He loved them, gave them glory and honor by placing them in the position they had. Everything was put under their feet. Rule and authority and responsibility. Yet that's not the reality today because of our sinfulness and rebellion against God. We're far from that. But you know something? Jesus has come. What a great salvation that Christ has come. Everything's been put under his rule and authority. Why? Because of what had happened here. He has reversed it all. What we couldn't do, he did. Everything has been subjected to Jesus. Verse 9, he was made a little lower than the angels through the incarnation. He's now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that you and I didn't have to. Suffering and the experience of death. What great news that is that we don't, that what we couldn't do, the life we couldn't live that God intended for us, Christ comes in the incarnation and he lives that life for us. Jesus comes and lives the life that was required. And because of that, through his suffering and death, everything is put back under his authority. What an amazing story. What a great salvation. But what are the implications of that today for you and me? The gospel implication of this is that we couldn't do it. We couldn't live the way God intended us. And he has done it for us. You know something, there's something freeing about that as you think about it. There is something freeing us up when we think, you know what, I was made for this. I haven't been able to do this because of our sin and sinfulness, but Christ has come and he has done what I couldn't do. We live in a time when autonomy and self-rule and freedom are so desired and loved, but because of what Jesus has done, his suffering and his death, we know that everything one day will come under his control. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And we are living in light of this truth now. What an amazing truth. What a great salvation for us. And this takes us to verse 10, this lovely phrase. And we've sang about this already tonight. Verse 10, see what it says? It's immense. It says in verse 10, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should, be, should make the pioneer or author, if your version says that, of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word pioneer or author, if I can explain it like this, means the person who leads, who leads from the front, who is the initiator, the author of it, the pioneer. If you were to think of two pioneers, 
Let's do a survey. Are you Windows? Hands up if you're Windows people. If you're older folk and you're looking at me going, what Windows? I have them in the house. Um, if you're a Windows computer, oh, Drew Gibson, didn't realize that, right? Apple people, so anyone with Apple, that's a 50-50, all right? But that's, that's what you call pioneers, isn't it? Pioneers of the way, particularly Steve Jobs. I, I'm, not a, I'm a Windows-Apple mix, um, a hybrid. But that's, he was a pioneer, wasn't he? Laying the way for technology, thinking ahead of what was needed, and he's pioneering. And that's the idea that we have here with Jesus, who is the pioneer, the author of our salvation. He's the one who leads the way for us. But also there's a double thing happening here. If he's the one who leads the way for salvation in verse 10, we also need to see it like this. In the ancient world, when a general had won a major battle or victory, he would parade into the city and behind him would have been the spoils of war, the spoils of victory. And there's something of that here as well, that Jesus is both the pioneer, the one who is leading the way to salvation, but what's in his wake? It is sons and daughters in his wake that he's leading to glory. Just, just capture that for a moment, that Jesus has come with such a great salvation that he is leading us the way to salvation, to God, but in behind him are people like you and me, sons and daughters, and he did it through his suffering. We're still living in the day of grace when God through his son is the way of salvation and Jesus today as the spoken word is leading many sons and daughters to glory. There is many more to come. There is a depth to be embraced here, to pay careful attention to, to what we have heard so that we don't drift or ignore this such great salvation. But keep that caption tomorrow as you go to work, that Christ is leading sons and daughters to glory. Is there some of them in your workplace still to discover this great salvation in your family? And you can say to them, you know what? You can't live this life, but Jesus can. He's done it for you, and he's paved the way for you to be a son and daughter led to glory by him. And then we see how he does that. This great salvation in verses 11 and 13, he does this by making us holy and family in verses 11, 13. And that's what it says in verse 11. Have a look at it for me. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. What a great message of salvation that the vilest of us, those whose sins are deep-seated, dark and ugly, may know salvation because Jesus makes us holy. He sets us apart through the forgiveness of sins, through Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. We become holy and we become part of God's family. And the end of verse 11, do you see it? Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If you've had any awareness of your sin and the guilt of it, you know what? You're ashamed. I couldn't tell anyone that. I can't believe I did that. But here, Jesus makes you holy. But he not only does that, he brings you into the family of God. And he says to them, you know what? I'm not ashamed of them. 
I'm not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And verses 12 and 13 are quotations from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, and they capture how Jesus thinks about his family. See the last one, which is lovely, in verse 13. And again, he says, here I am, and the children God has given me. Isn't that wonderful to think that a sinner can be made right with God, can be brought into the family of God, and Jesus isn't ashamed of us? that he's willing to say, and here are the children that God has given me, my family. I wonder how many of us long for that sense of belonging. How many in our world, our work, our place of, that we live in, have a sense of disconnection, no place, no belonging, no hope of being able to change, aware of their sin and guilt for their wrongdoing, and yet know nothing of the possibility of being made holy and being brought into the family of God. We're surrounded by that, that hopelessness. And yet Jesus, our great salvation, has provided the way. The way of redemption and salvation is found in him. He makes us fit, ready for it, able to be part of God's family by making us holy. This is a truth and reality for those of us here tonight who are believers. And we can say, what a great salvation. And lastly, tonight, we come to verses 14 and 15. And these are packed with wonderful, life-changing truths about this great salvation tonight. The first thing to note is this, is that Jesus became human or a man. Do you see it there? Since the children of flesh and blood, in verse 14, he too shared in their humanity. In 1995, there was a, a song released by Joan Osborne. I don't know if you remember this one. It was called One of Us. Hands up if you kind of have an idea of what I'm... Right, yep. And the song had the following lyrics in it. And it said this, What if God were one of us? Just a, and it goes on, it goes, Just a slob like one of us on the bus on the way home. Later on it goes, If God had a face, what it would it be like? And really, Osborne in that song is searching for the whole thing. And many of us, how do I know who God is? What's he like? How do, how do I know who he is? What is God? What if he was one of us? What if he had a face? And here in Hebrews, as we consider how great a salvation we have, the answer to this song lyrics is that God was one of us. Jesus is God. John's gospel speaks of the incarnation of Jesus in the following terms. The word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Or as Peterson's message paraphrase puts it so famously, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world. He took on flesh and blood. And as verse 17 says, see it there? He was fully human. He got tired. He was hungry. He had emotions. He knew what it was to live within a family, to grow up as a teenager, learn a trade, what it was to be loved and rejected. God the son became like you and I, the question is why, and there are a couple of reasons for it. He became flesh in order, as verse 14 says, to defeat death and the devil. Do you see it there? That's what he came to do. How do you rescue men and women, boys and girls, from the power of sin and death? How do you break the stranglehold that death and sin has on all of us and all humanity? We can't do it for ourselves. We've tried. We're still trying, but as verse 17 says, we're, we and others are all in slavery, and the fear of death is reality. Yet God takes the initiative. 
and he sent his son who took on flesh and blood, took on humanity in order to defeat the devil and, and, and death. Do you remember Genesis 3.15 and that promise that God made really to the devil? I'll put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, that is Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. At the cross, Jesus was struck, but the devil was crushed once and for all and the power of sin and death was defeated. That's why Romans can say, or Corinthians can say, where, O death, is your sting? This great salvation that we know and tell others is good news for those who fear death. For all, death is our great defeater. The devil is on borrowed time. And because of this great salvation, Jesus has broke his stranglehold and the power of, of death. It means we don't have to be fearful. It means we're no longer slaves to death because the Christian has eternal hope. Death is not the end. Secondly, we see in these verses that Jesus became flesh in order to be our merciful and high, faithful high priest. Do you see that in verse 17? In the Old Testament, the high priest was appointed as a mediator, really, for the people before God. He would go into the temple, make sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of the people, and those sacrifices meant that the people had atoned for their sin, paid for it. But it was repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And the Old Testament role of the priesthood was pointing forward, really, and needfully pointing forward to our ultimate high priest, who we'll see later in Hebrews. Jesus would be the one who would make a sacrifice once and for all, not as for himself, but instead for our sins, through the sacrifice of his own life for us so that our sins could be forgiven. A once and all for sacrifice for sin. He became flesh to do this. Thirdly and lastly, Jesus became flesh in order to help us when we're tempted. Do you see that in verse 18? Because Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Because he took on our flesh, he faced the same temptations you face. He's able to help each of us here tonight when it comes to being tempted. Perhaps tonight that's a word of encouragement to you as you battle temptations with all its desires. And perhaps there's someone here tonight and they're in the bondage of sin or a pattern of sin. They're tired of being tempted and they have a major problem or addiction or obsession at this moment in time. This verse should encourage you. Jesus took on our flesh. He knows what it is to be tempted. You have a merciful and faithful high priest in Jesus who can help you. Turn to him. This wonderful incarnation. Tonight, the author of Hebrews started off by giving a warning that we must pay more careful attention to the word of God, the gospel. Don't drift from it. Don't ignore such a great salvation. This great salvation tonight tells us that Jesus lives the life that we weren't able to, that everything is under his feet. He's bringing many sons and, and daughters to glory. He is the author of our salvation. He makes us fit for heaven by making us holy and part of his family. He became flesh and blood in order to defeat death and the devil, in order to be our faithful and merciful high priest, in order to help us when we're tempted. 
and to help us from drifting and ignoring this great salvation. This is the great salvation that God, through his Son, has achieved for us. How much of it do you know? As I preach it here tonight, I'm going, I'm scratching a surface on it to think about the incarnation, to think about him as faithful and merciful high priest. I'm just scratching the surface. And if that's the case, the potential to drift away is quite easy. And may the Lord help us to realize within our hearts and our minds what a great salvation Jesus has procured for us so that it may thrill our hearts and prevent us from drifting and ignoring this great salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, tonight we thank you for your word to us and we pray as we ponder it, as we meditate on it, as we think further on it, we pray, Lord, for your help to understand some of the depth of what you have just taught us about your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for that beautiful image of him being the pioneer of our salvation. Thank you for that picture of sons and daughters coming behind him as he leads them into glory. And Father, we're here tonight, and some of us, all of us, are undeserving of such a great salvation. And Father, may you make this salvation sweeter to us, we pray. And for those of us who don't know you, may we come to know the one who has made the way possible for us to be holy and part of your family. Thank you for Jesus becoming flesh and blood in order to defeat death and the devil, in order to be our faithful and merciful high priest, in order to help us when tempted. Lord, forgive us when we have given in to drifting away from this great salvation and ignoring it. Lord, help us tonight to rejoice in all that Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. We're going to pray for others uh, now in our, in our service. Father God, we thank you tonight for Helen Little, and we bring her before your throne of grace. We thank you for the way she's transitioned back into Japan. And tonight, Lord, as she takes this prayer drive, which will take her to different parts of Japan, where there is very little Christian witness, we pray, Lord, that you'll help her to pray that, Lord, you'll be with her as she goes into villages and towns. And, Lord, we pray that you'll fill her with the hope of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus is sovereign, that there is many knees and tongues that will confess him in this place, we pray. Lord, be with her as she goes with the rest of the OMF team over these next few days. And may this time of prayer prepare the way for the word to be fruitful in this place, we pray. Father, tonight we're conscious and we pray for Syria as tomorrow a truce is called. We pray even tonight for Aleppo as it's been bombed. We pray for many of those scenes where we've seen young children um, being caught up in rubble. Father, one day everything will be put under your rule and peace. We long for that day, Father. And we pray for Christians in Syria that they will have that hope as they continue to stay in the country, as those who've left look back into their homeland. 
fill them with the homeland that is to come of the new heavens and the new earth, we pray. And we pray that this truce tomorrow will have significance. We pray that for peace for this region and particularly for Syria, that, Lord, you will hold back those who would seek to destroy life, we pray. Father, today we know that it is 15 years on since 9-11, and we pray, Father, for those who still live with the trauma of those days. We pray for those who've been physically injured and psychologically scarred. Father, we pray that that time has changed our dynamic in the world considerably. And again, Father, we pray tonight for world peace. We pray, Lord, for your kingdom to come and your rule to be evident across our world. Father, we thank you for this week of prayer that we've had together as a church body. And we thank you, Lord, for being able to pray for different ministries and organizations that are starting back. Father, we pray that each of these ministries and organizations that we're involved in over this coming term will point to the way of salvation in Jesus and that many sons and daughters, boys and girls, Lord, will be on their way to glory because of their contract through these ministries and organizations as they point to Jesus. Lord, be gracious to us this term we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.